Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. The old story is told of a cowboy driving out west down a dirt road with his dog riding in the back of the pickup truck and his horse in the trailer behind. He failed to make a curve and was in a horrible accident. And when a state trooper came upon the scene, he saw the pain that the animals were in. He saw the horse first. And because it was obvious the horse would die and was suffering, he put the horse out of his misery. Then he walked around and found the dog. The trooper, again, he could not bear to hear the dog just whine in pain. So he ended the dog's suffering as well. Then he tried to find the cowboy who had been thrown from the truck. Now the cowboy had broken bones, was in a lot of pain. But when the cop asked him if he was okay, he took one look at the smoking gun in the trooper's hand and he jumped up and told the officer he'd never felt better. Getting a correct attitude adjustment can help us change our perspective. And hopefully that takes place with regard to James 2, that we gain the understanding that we all need God's mercy. James 2, we begin with verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. History documents the brilliant medical doctor who discovered the use of blood plasma that resulted in saving thousands of lives in World War II, in the Korean War, and in the Vietnam War. Think of how big this was. Just at Pearl Harbor alone, 96% of those who received plasma survived. This was a major breakthrough in saving lives. After World War II, Charles Drew was named director of the National Blood Bank Program. He devoted himself to teaching doctors at Howard University Medical School. On April the 1st of 1950, while driving some young doctors to a conference, Charles Drew was involved in a car accident in Burlington, North Carolina. He was rushed to a hospital where his life could have been easily saved by using plasma, the very plasma that he himself had discovered. But Dr. Drew was denied admission to this hospital simply because his skin was black. He died on the way to another hospital. That hospital was 26 miles away. The blot of racial bias, it stains the pages of our national history. Church history fares no better. Prejudice is common. I've told you before of a friend of mine that was involved in the work of Christ with us. 
many years ago in Green Bay, Wisconsin. We were working with the poor in the inner parts of the city. And Tony and his wife, Nicole, they felt led to adopt three young children. Their mother was a prostitute and a drug user. Each of them had different fathers. Some of them didn't even know who their real fathers were. And when Tony and Nicole adopted these three precious children, his parents, both professing Christians, both members of a Baptist church, they disowned Tony and his wife because these children happened to have black skin. Partiality comes because of the color of skin. Partiality comes because of ethnic background. We made mention in our last study together in James that partiality comes when Christians get all gooey inside when a rich person, when a famous person professes faith in Jesus Christ. But they show little interest in the convict in prison who truly does come to salvation in the Lord. Partiality comes when we show deference to the rich and play favorites within the body of Christ. Despite the clear teaching of the word of God, partiality has disgraced the pages of church history. But you see, when you play favorites, you put glory upon one man while debasing another. Favoritism takes the approach that some people are not worth much, but the love of God makes no distinction from one man to another. There is nobody who does not count. James is about to tell us that the Lord Jesus, he didn't play favorites 2,000 years ago, and he doesn't play favorites now. Verse 8 again in your text. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Notice how James starts out. If you really fulfill the royal law. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament that we have this phrase, the royal law. This is the law of God. James takes us back to the Old Testament scripture, back to Leviticus 19, verse 18, which is the quote we see here, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James is calling us to action. He's telling us that this is the duty for each and every one of us. He wants us to fulfill the law of God by loving your neighbor as you already love yourself. Now, this is one of those points that separates some of the talk therapy of psychology from the Word of God. You see, often psychologists will teach that you need to love yourself more, but the Bible heads in the other direction. It assumes we already love ourselves. In fact, we love ourselves too much. Listen to a couple of recent articles from psychologists and what they believe about the need to love yourself more. From the website Psychology Today, Psychology Today had an article front and center titled Self-Love. Listen to just part of the teaching put forth in this article. Self-love doesn't happen by luck or the grace of God. You have to create it. And then the article goes on to list how you can love yourself even more. And here are some of the action steps. Honor yourself and who you really are. Love is your birthright. Recognize that the universe is literally made of love if we will just open ourselves to receive it like flowers opening to the sun, then everything is possible. Imagine a future where you totally love yourself and have totally owned your power. Forgive yourself for having made mistakes. Listen to this next part then you can consciously create better methods for getting the acceptance, attention, 
love, and success that you want. In other words, the teaching is love yourself more and strive for success. Strive for the attention that you think you deserve. From the popular website Healthy Place, also referred to as America's Mental Health Channel, another article on self-love. They added a few things. Listen to what they teach. Praise yourself. Criticism breaks down the inner spirit. Praise builds it up. Praise yourself as much as you can. Tell yourself how well you're doing with every little thing. Forgive yourself by looking into the mirror. At least once a day, say to yourself, I love you. I really love you. Love yourself. Do it now. I hope you understand that the word of God, it stands on opposite ground and it testifies you already love yourself enough. That true acceptance and worth is found in our identity in Christ, not in glorifying self, not in standing in front of a mirror praising yourself, but as men and women reconciled to a holy God by faith in his son, living in his love. Now, if you go back sometime and look at Leviticus 19, it makes it clear that the neighbor spoken of was a person within the nation of Israel, that they should love the people of God. But what happened in the New Testament? Well, Jesus, he expanded this teaching. Turn over to Luke 10. Let's grab some highlights. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Here's what I want you to notice. Take a look at verse 29. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's a great question. Who is my neighbor? everything that follows, the entire teaching of the parable of the Good Samaritan, it came in response to this question. Let's read it quick, starting with verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. The priest passed by, the Levite passed by, but the despised man of Samaria demonstrated love and compassion. Then the question from Jesus in verse 36, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him? who fell among the thieves. Race didn't matter. It did not matter if you were from a foreign land. It did not matter what the social standing was in the eyes of men. The love and compassion of Christ is always the answer. 
We know this is true in the family of God. Remember the teaching of John 13, where Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for the brethren is what we should be known for, but it goes further. Think of the extent of this teaching. Think of the words of Christ in Matthew 5. This even holds true to those who hate us. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Romans 5, 5. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The love of Christ compels us to love others. We obey God not out of fear. We obey God because of love. Head back to James, if you would. The royal law he speaks of is the law of love. It is royal because it was issued by the king, the Lord Jesus. There's a kingdom focus here in James 2. Those rich in faith will be heirs of the kingdom, and the law of love is the decree of the coming king. James teaches us that if you fulfill the royal law by loving your neighbor as yourself, you do well. The command to love, it stands at the heart of the teaching of Christ. The only thing more important, according to Christ himself, is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with all your strength. When asked in Matthew 22 what the greatest commandment was in the law, Jesus responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And don't miss the important truth that Jesus said at the end, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You see, the commandments from God found in the law of Moses are summed up in the command to love. That is the teaching of Romans 13, 9. Jot that one down. And again, Galatians 5, 14, Paul said, the law is fulfilled in one word, the command to love. James is letting the Christians know that this is the right path to be on for the redeemed believer in Christ. A life lived serving others and serving Christ. A life lived loving others, and putting their needs ahead of your own. This is the type of person who will receive the words, Well done, thy good and faithful servant from the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 9 goes in the other direction. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Here comes the contrast. James is taking us back to some of what was taking place in the churches. Some of them were clearly not living out the law of love. You cannot live out the law of love and show partiality at the same time. A lack of love for others, it brings sin, and this is exactly what was taking place amongst these Christians. This was something deliberate. This was not an accident, and it wasn't an oversight. This is something they were choosing to do. And by quoting Leviticus 19, James had made it clear that to demonstrate partiality within the body of Christ was something that was clearly forbidden in the Mosaic law. James was letting them know that they were in sin. They were not living up to the standard set by God himself or his people. They stood convicted as men and women who had transgressed the law of God. Each time men and women 
in the body of Christ demonstrate partiality. They demonstrate that they stand guilty of breaking the law of God. And with the wording used, James is giving the believers the picture of the law, laying out the path in which a man should walk. But these men and women had not stayed on the marked road. They had stepped defiantly over the boundary that God himself had put forth. It is the teaching of James that within the body of Christ, we must give just as much respect and love towards the brethren who are poor as we do to those who are well-dressed and prominent in the community. Any other course of action, any other motive than love is sin. Verse 10 records, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. Let me tell you what I think James is getting at. There was a man who had been arrested for a robbery. He went before Judge Kent, a renowned legal scholar. Listen to what this man had done. He cut a hole in a tent where some people were camping. Then he stuck his right arm and his head into the hole and took out things of value. He was caught and brought to trial, and his lawyers put up an absolutely ridiculous defense. His lawyer said, you cannot call this man guilty because his whole body was not involved in the crime, just his arm and his head. After the case had been argued in his final plea, Judge Kent said to the jury, if you feel there is validity to this argument and only part of this man's body is guilty of the crime, then you are instructed to find a verdict of guilty against all the parts of the body you find culpable here. Well, the jury went out and soon came back with a verdict. They found guilty the head, the right shoulder, and the right arm of the man in question. And the judge then sentenced the head, the right shoulder, and the right arm of the man to two years of hard labor at the state prison. And then he added this, you can do anything you please with the rest of your body. Here's the teaching. Just as the body is one, so is the law. When you break the law of love, you stand guilty of breaking the whole law. Judgment will come. This is the judgment seat of Christ for believers. It will be a loss of rewards. At that time, you may go before Christ expecting rewards for going to church, teaching Sunday school, or even serving on a board. But if you lived with partiality, if you did these things playing favorites, your efforts were tainted. The law is a unit. Break one link and you've broken the chain. Break part of a window and the whole thing shatters. Sin violates the perfect righteousness of God, the giver of the law, because the law is the expression of God's will for his people. I think at the heart of this is that James understood the nature of men. Notice the picture given. This person is seeking to keep the whole law, but he stumbles in one point. There are 613 commandments in the law. This person hypothetically keeps 612 of them, but he breaks one. This person is guilty of all, meaning under the power of the law, guilty, accountable. We don't get to choose the precepts of God that we want to keep. If you break the boundary at one point, you are guilty of breaking the boundary that God has put forth. To violate the laws of God is an offense against the holy God who gave these laws. 
It disrupts our fellowship with him. It demonstrates rebellion to him. It demonstrates our pride and our lack of concern for God and his word. Recognize that the commands to not show partiality within the body of Christ are given for us because it's a major disruption to the fellowship of believers when we have people playing favorites. Partiality is never pleasing to God. Verse 11 explains to us, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Notice the wording. He who said, this is a Jewish expression for God. Here's what James is getting at. The same God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. It is the same God who put forth both of these commands. Now, why is this important? James is trying to tell us that these commands are not some text in a dusty old manuscript. This is God himself speaking to us. Both adultery and murder are serious violations of the law of love. You see, you cannot claim to be living in the love of Christ and commit adultery. And you cannot claim to be living in the love of Christ and murder someone. Either one was punishable by death under the Mosaic law. James is explaining verse 10 to these Jewish Christians who still thought highly of the law. You don't kill someone or cheat on your spouse and then say, well, at least I kept some of the commands of God because you stand guilty of breaking the commands of God. Think of it this way. If this was just a list of rules, you could break one and you could honestly say you only broke one rule. But that is not what we have. God's commands are the revelation of his will. So to disobey one command, even just a command to not show partiality, it is still to disobey God to be guilty before him. I want you to be clear on this point. James was not telling us that we should start following the rituals of Old Testament worship that are found in the Mosaic Law. That's not the subject. He's not talking about ceremonies and sacrifices. He's talking about the law of love, the royal law, the law of liberty. In other words, as a believer in Christ, let your conduct be governed by love. Christ told his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. James is confronting the mindset in the church that some sins are okay. He is confronting the mindset that suggests murder is wrong, but believers can get away with gossip, live for self, or be jealous of one another. Take another look at the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 sometime, and you will see listed the sins of the heart, including hatred for your fellow man. This isn't about putting us back under the law, but it is about James using the law to point out the sins that run rampant in the church. And what James is telling us is that if you start showing preference to the wealthy, it can lead you down a path of sin. It can lead you to lie. It can lead you to idolatry. Anytime you reject God's word, you are headed for trouble. Listen, Christian love doesn't mean we even have to like one another. It doesn't mean we have to agree on everything or even be close friends all the time with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the love of Christ does mean that we treat others the way God has treated us. It is an act of the will, not an emotion that we try to manufacture because the motive is to glorify God. But then 
as we act in love, we just may begin to see people the way that Jesus Christ sees them, the value that Christ sees in them. Christian love does not leave you where it finds you. The love of Christ helps the poor man strengthen his faith. The love of Christ helps the rich man humble himself in the sight of the Lord. The love of Christ builds one another up in the faith. Now, verse 12 is a very important verse to our understanding of this text. Take a look at what it teaches us. So speak, and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Key verse right here. This is how the believers in Christ should act and should speak. They should speak and act as men who will be judged by the law of liberty. This is the motivation for those in Christ. We live as men and women who are subject to Christ and as men and women who understand that one day we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul wrote of this in 2 Corinthians 5. Do you remember the words? Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Each one of us, Paul wrote in Romans 14, will give account to God. The law of liberty, James writes. We're not going to be judged by the Mosaic law. We will be judged by the law of liberty. Our words will be judged. Our actions will be judged. The counsels of the heart will be judged. Now, this takes us back to the word of truth of verse 18 in chapter 1. This takes us back to the implanted word of verse 21 in chapter 1. The word which has been implanted in the believer's heart works in the believer, giving us the desire to live out the will of God. We are not speaking of an external law, an external set of rules to live by. We are speaking of the implanted word, the internal law of love written upon the heart of the believer in Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God living in us, and the truth that we will one day stand before a holy God and be judged by this law, it should be a powerful motivation for how we live right now. For the child of God, it should cause us to want purity in our lives. You see, if our words and our actions are guided by faith, inspired by love, we will want what is best for others, and we will treat others with the same respect, love, and concern that Christ offers to us. There is freedom in Christ. It starts with the gospel. The gospel sets men free, and then it carries forward as men obey God, walking by faith, freedom to serve Christ in love without fear of eternal condemnation, freedom from sin, freedom from the legalistic rules of religion, free from the condemnation of the law, free to be under the authority of Christ and to worship him from the heart in spirit and in truth. Freedom to be all that I can be in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, it's a strong verse. Take a look with me. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Those in Christ who demonstrate mercy are promised mercy from God. Mercy is not natural to the heart of man. The man without mercy in his life for others is not promised mercy, but instead is promised judgment without mercy. Mercy is having compassion 
and giving to another not what they deserve, but what they need. James recognized that these Christians were not acting in mercy toward the poor man. Be careful here. The meaning is not that by showing mercy to men, we receive mercy from God for salvation, because if this was the meaning, we would be headed down the road to a works-based salvation. Remember the context. This is the judgment seat of Christ, written to believers. James' proclamation is that those believers who walk in the love of Christ towards others will be rewarded when they stand before Christ. This is a remarkable text. Put this in light of all the passages in the New Testament about the judgment of believers. Salvation is not in view, and believers will not experience the wrath of God. But if you show partiality here and now, it will directly affect how much mercy God shows you when you stand before him. If you show mercy towards other believers, God will show mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, just as love triumphs over partiality. Because how we treat one another, it is an indicator to how much a love of Christ controls us. Christ will examine our works. Our lives will be an open book before our Creator. And if we were left on our own, the only thing that we would have is a loss of rewards, even as believers. What we will need on that day is mercy, a willingness on the part of Christ, our judge, to look at our words and our deeds with the fullest measure of compassion. If you live your life as a believer without compassion, without love, without mercy towards others, if this is the pattern of your life, you can expect to find yourself looking for mercy when you stand before Christ. You'll be saved. But the Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer a loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Show mercy now to others, and the Lord's mercy will be yours when you stand before him. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is victorious over judgment. God prefers to show us mercy, but he will not reward a sinful life. The church was being awoken to the truth that indifference towards a poor man would be taken into account when we all stand before the Savior. In Matthew 5, 7, Christ said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. A friend of mine, Dave Anderson, the president of Grace School of Theology, he writes the following story. When I was a youth pastor, we had a very dedicated young person in the core group of about 30 kids who suffered from cystic fibrosis. His name was Craig Powell. Most kids with cystic fibrosis die by the time they become teenagers, but Craig was still with us. Craig had to start the morning in a lung machine to clear the phlegm from his breathing so he could go to school. He only weighed about 90 pounds and walked with a decided limb due to a deformation in his right leg, almost like a club foot. He had a severe case of acne and had trouble drooling. It goes without saying that the other kids were uncomfortable around Craig. He was sort of pushed to the side. In this particular youth group, 
I had taught them how to share their faith with strangers by going out to Love Field, a local airport, once a month. We did this for three years. We were never obnoxious. Just asked people sitting by themselves if they would like to take a religious survey. If they did, when the survey was over, we would ask them if they would like a personal relationship with God. If they said yes, then we would offer how they could have one. We were never pushy, and Craig never missed. He would just limp up to people and go through the routine. These were the days of Sunday evening services, and the pastor was always aware of Love Field Sunday for our youth group. He would give part of the evening service over to the youth, who had gone to Love Field if they wanted to share. Craig was always the first one down the aisle, limping along, sharing his story that day in his gravelly little voice. Dave continues to write, I graduated from seminary and moved away to help start a church, but Craig and I kept in touch. He graduated from high school and went on to college, and one day he called me and said, Dave, I just can't get a girl to go out with me. I know no one is going to marry me, but I just would like to have a friend to talk to. And Dave confesses, I didn't know what to tell Craig. Sometimes tears would roll down my cheeks as I listened to him talk. I reached into space for words to comfort and encourage him, but felt so inadequate. One day his mother called to tell me Craig had died. He lived several years longer than the typical person suffering from cystic fibrosis. He lived long enough and deeply enough to learn how to share his faith with more boldness and faithfulness than most of the healthy kids his age. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul wrote that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. No man has any right to glory in the presence of God. And so why is it that we get so caught up in judging people at first sight? Why is it that we care how people look, how they dress, where they live or work? And then immediately in our minds, we place them in a position either above or below ourselves. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. I would rather look like an absolute monster with nothing to show for myself in life and have a heart rich in faith than to have all the externals with shallow faith before God. We don't give some people a chance. We look at how they dress or how they look and we form our opinions. Receive others in meekness. Treat people in light of the mercy of God. Be quick to demonstrate compassion, love, because I can tell you that a lot of people over the ages have echoed the words of Craig. I know no one is going to marry me, but I just would like to have a friend to talk to. Let the love of God govern you. Look at other people as an opportunity to help them in their faith. Build them up instead of running the other way. Show mercy and grace, because mercy triumphs over judgment. Before we close out, I want to thank you for listening. And if you want to keep current with our studies, there's a lot of ways to make sure that you never miss another episode. You can subscribe by email. You can get our free app for your tablet or phone. 
You can also use the Apple Podcast app or one of the Android apps and have all of the episodes delivered right to your mobile device. You can find all of the links on our webpage, returntotheword.com, underneath the podcast tab. And if you have a minute, help us out by sharing this episode on Twitter or Facebook, because by telling others, you help us to tell the world of God's amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.